Hello Passport People listeners, Finn here, and I just wanted to take a moment to tell you that Island Life Productions is now on Patreon. Patreon is an online subscription service that allows you to support our work for as little as £2 per month in exchange for different bits of bonus content. So far, we have been uploading special Passport People travel vlogs, Tales of Andalusia and The Highland Fling, taking you on personalised video adventures to some of the most beautiful parts of the world. We've also been uploading special behind-the-scenes content from our recent fiction podcast, Welcome to the Quids Inn, with special videos showcasing how we made the series, and a bonus bloopers podcast with all the funny bits from the recordings that weren't in our initial script. To join the island and begin supporting our work for less than the price of a coffee per month, go to patreon.com slash islandlifeproductions today. And now, on with the show. So are those hammocks where you sleep? No, no, no. These are my... These, I, I call this my office. <laughs> <laughs> Only your ideal office, Sam, would have two <laughs> hammocks in it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Hola, amigos, and Welcome to Passport People, the podcast where we talk to people about the places that matter to them. I am your host, Finn, and today I am joined 24 hours later than expected because of a power cut, uh, the wonderful Sam. How are you, Sam? Hola, Finn. I'm very well. Como estas? How are you? Bien, I think. I think I'm bien. You know, with, with the situation in the world, it's a little hard to, you know, define what bien is anymore, but feeling all right <laughs> i think you've, you've heard the limits of my spanish <laughs> <laughs> uh, no no more spanish now okay <laughs> uh sam tell us a bit about you uh so i'm originally from the united kingdom uh i come from cambridge and uh, i come from a family of violin makers but being the black sheep of the family i decided not to carry on uh, the family businesses, <laughs> and I decided to study economics and history at the uh, London School of Economics. And I currently live in Honduras, where I'm teaching English, uh, and I also teach English a little bit in Japan online as well. Uh, I can't wait to get into the meat and potatoes of how that works. So, where exactly are you from? You mentioned Cambridge there. You are uh, most definitely British to anybody that's listening, but it's already clear from the initial knockings of this conversation that your cultural influences and heritage is a little bit all over the place. Where do you consider yourself from? <laughs> what, a, what a very tough question. Uh, well, uh, my on the mother's side of my family, there's some Russian blood and there's some German blood. Um, that, that side of the family moved to Canada. Uh, so I am dual national Canadian British. Uh, I'm not really sure where I call a home at the moment. Uh, all of the things that happened in the UK have, have made me feel recently that I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't really consider it home. And so I, I'm sort of a lost nomad on the road at the moment, uh, exploring the world and, and seeing what beautiful cultures and experiences I can pick up along the way. This This feels like the start of a concept album waiting to happen. 
Absolutely. I would totally buy that concept album. And Sam, where are we talking about today? Uh, today, Finn, we're talking about Honduras, which is where I've ended up at the moment. our listeners who maybe don't know where Honduras is, where is Honduras? I wouldn't blame listeners who don't know where Honduras is. Honduras is a country which is systematically ignored almost as much as New Zealand. In the way, <laughs> just about, it just about and makes sense the map. <laughs> <laughs> but it's very, very small indeed. Uh, so you're, most people know where Canada and the United States are, North America. Uh, if you go down, you find a very big country, Mexico. If you go down further, you'll find a much smaller country, Guatemala, El Salvador, and then you hit Honduras. So Honduras is one of the bigger countries in Central America, but it's very, very small in comparison to the Mexico and the United States. This feels like quite a strange place for you to randomly find yourself. How, how did you first end up here? You know what? Latin America has been a region which has fascinated me for a very, very long time. Uh, it, it started. It all started in high school in, in year seven when I fell in love with a Peruvian girl. <laughs> Which is, <laughs> it could be the, probably the very start of my my obsession with Latin America. Uh, but then I went to university and I, I mentioned that I studied uh, economic history, and I got really really interested in Latin American economies. And I decided rather than well, I loved learning about them in school, but I've, I've really spent any time that I can possibly get uh, back in the region. See, seeing uh, the countries for myself, uh, and and so I think for a very long time I felt I felt pulled towards Latin America and Central America in particular. My first time here, I was I was backpacking through the region, and I had three months before I had to start a accountancy job in London. And three months was just not enough, and I felt myself being pulled and drawn into every single market, community, village, uh, really enthralled. So uh, it, it seems a bit strange, um, but yeah, this is where I feel, yeah, very, very, very interested in it. And I feel, yeah, like this is now my, my new home. And I'm just a little bit curious, what is it exactly about, you know, that, that, that sort of, that, that thing that pulls you into, you know, these communities and these markets and these, these homes? I, you know, I don't want to go full je ne sais quoi, because it feels like that's one of those terms that's just used way too often. But but what is it, do you think, if you had to put your finger on it, that thing is that, that just fascinates you in a way that you don't find with, with other places in the region? Oh, well, I think the entire region is really, really fascinating for me. I'm, I, I, it is very difficult to put a, a finger on it in an articulate way. Uh, I, I feel like Latin America is, is a place that a lot of people know from, from traveling and I, it was a place where I came from my, from my gap year and I had the experience of seeing these amazing tourist attractions and going around and, and meeting tourists and visiting different monuments. Uh, but I became quite aware the more I saw in the region that there was a, a lot of stuff that was happening beyond the usual touristic experiences and, and the places in Latin America that people know. So a, a lot of folks will go to Machu Picchu, Medellin, um, they'll see the ruins in Honduras, uh, the famous mine ruins. But there's there's so much more beyond uh, what the what the region sells to tourists. <laughs> in essence, uh, the 
communities in Honduras in particular is such a broad, vibrant mix of indigenous peoples and cultures. There's a huge um, number of people here from China and Palestine, and and there's just a huge amount of diversity that uh, I find really, really fascinating. And I just became really curious, like, what what are people's lives like, the people who live in these countries? Uh, what, what's everyday like for them? Uh, the history of the region as well is completely enthralling. There's a lot a lot we can talk about in this podcast, no doubt. And the more I learned and the more I went beyond the uh, the sort of tourist trail, the more I decided I wanted to stay. Amazing. And actually, the, the tourist trail and the, the Maya feels like a good place for us to kick this podcast off. Because I think when people think about Honduras, one of the first things that they're going to uh, clock is that it was home to several great Central American cultures, including the Maya. Um, Obviously, the Spanish came in, the Spanish did a whole load of nasty stuff to it that kind of affected the way that those uh, communities were protected and, and seen uh, within the rest of the world. To what extent is that heritage, particularly the Mayas you've already mentioned, part of the culture today? Uh, yeah, you're right. The Spanish did a, an absolutely excellent job at exterminating cultures and indigenous peoples in Latin America. Um, so, yeah, in, in a lot of countries, you'll, you'll see very, very little impact um, from, from these communities. Uh, most of the populations in Argentina and uh, other, other countries in Chile, they're almost entirely Mezzito, the Spanish descendants. Uh, in Honduras, you do get a lot of indigenous peoples. Um, you, that's, that, that's not to say that the Spanish didn't do absolutely terrible, cruel stuff to people. The people here were persecuted and exterminated and killed through disease as well. Um, I... I mean, Mayan culture, Mayan peoples, there are some indigenous groups who are linked to the Maya, but there's no group which claims direct descendancy, to my knowledge. Uh, I think maybe one of the reasons that the indigenous peoples in Honduras did so well uh, in comparison to other indigenous peoples in the region could have been the, the absolutely dismal conditions that the Spanish found in terms of the disease environment in Honduras. So the Spanish really struggled to completely colonize every part of the region because a lot of Honduras was thick jungle that was infected, infested with malaria and the Spanish had no immunity to that. So they found it a very tough place to quote unquote conquer. Uh, that being said though, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of indigenous communities were sadly wiped out and their persecution continues today. Uh, a lot of languages are still being lost. A lot of, uh, a lot of the rights of indigenous peoples are being violated. Um, so yeah, there, there, is a, there is an indigenous culture here in Honduras. It, it, it's very present. Um, it, maybe it's not thriving. Um, but they, yeah, it, the, it, the cultural elements remain. It, I guess it's slightly difficult to sort of compare and contrast indigenous uh, relationships in different places. But just to gain a, a sense of the, the extent uh, to which that culture is kind of, you know, part of the mainstream versus sort of completely separate and a completely outside thing. Do you mm. think that um, indigenous peoples in Honduras are more or less closely linked to the mainstream uh, sort of idea and element of the culture than, say, uh, Native Americans or uh, the Aboriginal population in Australia? It's a very, very tough question. I, I feel like perhaps they're a little bit more represented in mainstream culture than um, the Native Americans in America and Australia, although I, I don't know a lot about these subjects. Um, but yeah, certainly I think there's a there is an appreciation of the people for these cultures and an, an embracement uh, 
people embrace his cultures. I was walking in the town square of the city the other the other day, and I see lots of uh, people dressed in the native clothing, very colorful dresses, and boys uh, running around with machetes during these ceremonial dances. It, yeah, it does feel like there is more representation and celebration of the cultures, at least on, on a person basis, person to person. That's really interesting. Um, and now let's talk about the other side of the coin, which is Spain, um, because you've lived in Spain as well as Honduras. You've actually you you've come to Honduras having been in Spain for a little bit. To what extent does that Spanish culture still influence what Honduras is today? Ooh, uh, good question. Uh, I lived in Andalusia during the lockdown. So <laughs> again, I, I, I saw some Spanish culture. I wasn't, I, a lot of the cultural places in Spain were also closed. We had a very, very harsh lockdown in Spain. So I spent a lot of time inside. Uh, you know what, in Honduras, I don't, you know, I don't see a lot of Spanish influence on the Honduran culture. But I mean, you have, of course, the language is is taken from Spain. You have religion. A vast majority of people here are, are Catholic and practice different forms of Christianity. That is a remnant from Spain. And the architecture, so that you still see a lot of colonial architecture, that's here as well. But in terms of what are people eating, drinking, listening to on the radio, uh, you know what? Spanish culture isn't really that represented. I see, for example, far more Chinese restaurants in Honduras than I do. Oh, really? Yeah, there's there's a bizarre mix of cultures which have come together in Honduras. And I mean, I'm thinking about my students. What are they listening to? What are they reading? They have a peculiar but very interesting fondness for Japan. And so a lot of them will read graphic novels and uh, yeah, they're really interested in manga and that kind of thing. So we've got a huge range of cultural influences. Spain, I I don't see as much as I expected. Wow. And so actually what we're saying is that possibly as a, as a result of globalization, that there's a lot more Eastern Asia that influences sort of what people want to engage with and, and uh, sort of be part of than, than perhaps slightly more European influences. Uh, yeah, it could, it could be. Uh, I, in terms of what, why... Why are there so many Chinese people here? I was I was asking myself, uh, and and I think when you say globalization, I always think about oh things which have happened in the last twenty years and the rise of the internet and things like this. Um, but a lot of the uh, the cultures which have come and the people who have come to Honduras, they were here for a, a long time before that. So that I found out recently that the first wave of Chinese people who come to who came to Honduras was in the eighteen eighties. Uh, a lot of people were fleeing China at the time, heading towards the United States. And one of the first uh, immigration policies that the United States put into place and, and was uh, sort of this, this discrimination against people from China. Um, so the United States became very concerned about these waves, waves of Chinese immigrants. They, they, talk, they talk about the Chinese in the 1880s like they talk about people from Central America and Latin America now, if you think of the last four years under Trump, the idea that the Chinese people were bringing drugs and crime. And so the United States banned people from China entering and, and the people from China thought, well, where else can we go in the Americas? And Honduras seemed like a fantastic option and Honduras welcomed them with open arms. Wow. The same as, yeah, same is true from uh, people from the Middle East fleeing World War One. A lot of them wanted to go to the United States, but Honduras again said, look, we're a great country. Please come in and help us develop our firms and businesses. So. There's a, lot, it's a big mix and it goes hundreds of years back. 
And do you think, in terms of, I mean, I guess you can't speak to some of the sort of older generations, but in, in terms of people who are coming sort of nowadays, a little bit like you, do you think they are finding it fairly easy to adapt into the culture, or into the life uh, that people live in Honduras, or, or does it feel a little bit square peg in round hole? Uh interesting question i'm not i'm not sure how many people are coming to honduras at the moment it doesn't i mean in terms of economic migration i think honduras is probably one of the worst countries you might want to migrate to <laughs> it's it's not it's not doing particularly well in in terms of development it's not sucking in labor from other countries in the same way it would there are people who who come in and run multinational companies and there's a lot of chinese investment in the region I'm not sure if these people are really integrating themselves into the culture. It's more so they run firms and they're selling things into the region. Uh, for me, uh, I've just arrived here. In all honesty, I've been here for about a month. Uh, I look forward to pushing and, and, and trying to integrate myself into the culture, although I must say it is, although I have friends in Honduran friends here, I don't quite feel like I have been accepted yet into um, into the country as a whole. But we'll see. I've only been here for a short time, so I hope I can change that. Yeah. I mean, you're a lovable guy, Sam. If anybody can do it, it's definitely you. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, they got, they got to fall for my charm eventually. <laughs> <laughs> it's the rules. Um, moving back to sort of uh, zooming out and the wider uh, picture, um, levels in, of income inequality in Honduras are higher than in any other Latin American nation, which really surprised me there, because there are some pretty income unequal uh, places on that list. Is Do you think that's a hangover of colonialism, or do you think there might be something else going on there in terms of the way that the country operates? Oh, uh, I appreciate the question. I'm glad you asked. Uh, and if I if I go on for too long, Finn, you'll, you'll just have to sort of start uh, waving your hand in front of your, your neck. <laughs> <laughs> I'll look out for that. Uh, you're right. So Latin America is one of the most unequal regions on the planet, and every single country is hugely unequal. And there is a big, there's a big role of Spanish colonial history plays in that. Uh, and to put it in perspective, like under the Spanish Empire, it was it was almost serfdom in Latin America, where you had a, a collection of very powerful landowners and, and rich people from Spain, and then a, a hundreds and thousands of millions of native peoples and serfs who were expected to do the mining and the, the uh, farming and, and everything. So it was a very unequal society, the Spanish Empire. And then when it collapsed in the early 1800s, uh, all the Spanish institutions, the Spanish left, but the institutions remained the same. And so you had very, very powerful landed elites in, in Latin America called the Latifundia, uh, who remain control over most of the country's land, most of the country's resources and wealth. And that, I mean, that Latin America has been struggling to come to terms with that to this very day. I mean, there have been various presidents in various countries who've attempted at modest land reforms, but society remains very, very unequal. Uh, there, there are some people who blame the Spanish for everything. I was reading <laughs> Latin America, Eduardo Galeano is a uh, is a Marxist, a bit of a Marxist. He, he blames the Spanish for everything. And then the United States, and he says these colon these colonial, big colonial powers rather inform in for in formal colonialism like the Spanish or sort of informal colonialism like the American multinationals which dominate resource extraction. He he blames these processes for everything. There's I would 
I would sort of say, well, yeah, this is an interesting point, but there are other things going on, uh, of course, and and a lot of responsibility has to be has to be taken up by the people who lead these countries today. I mean, the colonial period was two hundred years ago. Why are they still unequal? Why hasn't anything been done? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, and in Honduras, in particular. You have a lot of other processes that have gone on since colonialism, which have made uh, inequality in Honduras more pronounced than its neighboring countries. Uh, for example, uh, Honduras was the first banana republic. Um, hey, so is, first outing of that term of the podcast. First, it's, 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 we need to have a bell first. And what happened was in the, in the 1900s, lots of multinational companies, the fruit companies from the United States came into Honduras and said, well, uh, I mean, you guys are great at growing fruit. Uh, unlike, you know, they didn't want to grow bananas in the United States. It was a bit too cold. They came to Honduras and said, let's grow bananas here. And then the government said, very well, that's, that's fine, but uh, we're going to limit what you do and we're going to tax what you do. And the banana company, it's, it was uh, the Cuyamel banana company, now it became United Fruit, and now it's Chiquita Brands. Uh, and they said, well, we, we're not we're not keen on, we, we're keen on the bananas, but we don't want to be taxed. So they, they basically gave a, a ton of weapons to people uh, who were against the government and overthrew the entire government so they could get someone in charge who was not going to tax the banana companies. And that worked great for, if you're a big multinational company, that, that's great. But if you're the people living in the, in Honduras and you need sort of money to pay for schools, healthcare, medicines, and all of this, obviously having large multinational companies take the resources without paying tax isn't great. And this must have and, and will have caused more inequality uh, in Honduras today. Finally, <laughs> I feel like we're going on. No, uh, no, country, no, no, this is good. Okay, the, the, the country's government at the moment are... I don't think this is a controversial thing or partisan to say at all, that they're, they're crooks. Um, they're thugs. <laughs> um, they, are, they are representing the interests of, of a very powerful elite uh, in Honduras, the landed elite, partly the, the rich the rich descendants of the people, the, the Spanish left, Latifundia, but they're representing very, very powerful interests, not the will of the Honduran people, and they don't look out for the will of the Honduran people. They tend to operate in ways that will enrich a certain section of the society, they call them the Honduran oligarchs, as a collection of very powerful families, they are much more reluctant to implement reforms that will benefit normal Hondurans. And when Hondurans, when there have been presidents who've advocated for modest reforms, for example, the President Zelaya, who was, yeah, President Zelaya, he advocated a higher minimum wage and more power to trade unions. Uh, and he was, uh, trade unions are much needed in Honduras, where the sweatshop industry is huge. Uh, he was overthrown in a military coup in 2009. It was one of the first coups in the 21st century. So whenever presidents have tried to address the incredible levels of inequality in this country, they have been overthrown uh, and by, by, by the country's um, right-wing governments who are backed by powerful business interests. Wow. So it's not just a banana republic. It's a banana-based banana republic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, bananas are still a big part of the Honduran economy, but but now uh, it's the clothing industry, textiles, American multinational companies, large companies owning these production chains. Uh, also, one of the biggest industries in Honduras, I think the third export uh, after fruit and textile is, is cocaine. Um, so they're very powerful business interests who operate in these criminal economies who also are propping up the government that's in charge at the moment. Um, so the current president, Juan Orlando, 
um, has been found guilty of receiving campaign contributions from drug traffickers. His brother is in jail for trafficking drugs. So, I mean, yeah, it's a government that does not represent the the views of ordinary Hondurans, I would say. Wow. But I'll tell you what's really strange and curious in that whole process is that despite the Banana Republic tag that we've just, you know, made very, very clear and you were very good at sort of concisely explaining what that is to our listeners um, and talking about the drugs and talking about the textiles and, and how that process works, Honduras is still one of the poorest nations in the Western Hemisphere. And is that, I mean, again, to sort of feed into your previous answer, is that literally just... It's the upward sucking motion and a lot of that money that should belong to ordinary Hondurans is going out of the country? Or is it that it's going to the oligarchs? Or, like, what's happening there? That's that's exactly what it is, Finn. Um, it is the sucking, the sucking sound of money leaving the country. It, you, can, you can hear it. And if it's not leaving the country, it's going into the bank accounts of a few very powerful, wealthy interests and, and politicians. Um, it, it, in fact, if you, if you walk around any big city in Honduras today, you'll see... Um, donde esta el dinero? Where is the money? Uh, the idea is that lots of money has been given to government organizations recently to help fight the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, now, doctors and people working in the health systems are saying, we haven't seen that money come through yet. It has gone somewhere else. Uh, and the people in charge of handling this money are the government institutions. Um, actually, the I'll, I'll tell you an anecdote to just sum up how much money is just being sucked out of the, the country by political leaders. So again, this is not Juan Orlando's brother who we've been talking about. Uh, it's called Tony Hernandez. But his sister, Hilda Hernandez, recently um, found to have embezzled the best part of $310 million into the, her own bank account and bank accounts of the government cronies and, and big um, and, and big people who support the government. Uh, now, she was in charge of a governmental organizations designed to promote the development of the country so she is someone who's in charge of putting money where it's really needed but yet still i mean startling levels of corruption from someone who really should be trying to put the country's interests first in terms of uh the business processes that go on you're right there's lots of resources in honduras honduras is a country of amazing potential uh, i i, I want to focus on the amazing potential of honduras more than i do the, the criminals who run it um but if we look at the resources it has, they're all in sort of what we call extractive industries. So the multinationals come in, they see the resources, lots of gold, silver, um, there's different mining operations, there is uh, palm oil, huge, huge industry here. Uh, but these industries are, I mean, they're very profitable for the multinationals who sell these products in the United States. Do they generate a lot of employment that's well paid for Hondurans? Not really. So just because it has a lot of resources doesn't mean that the wealth is is going to be shared out by people who work in these sectors as well. Um, yeah, it's very extractive. What is that in the background? I'm, you know what? <laughs> all sorts of noises. Uh, in this place. I'm very surprised. We're about to go into a mayor. A mayor oh, how do I say this word? Mayoral? <laughs> the mayor... They're going to elect a mayor soon. So every 20 minutes or so, someone's going to drive past with blazing political slogans. Uh, <laughs> lots of strange noises. This morning I was woken up by a pair of vultures making love on the roof. And it's a tin roof. It sounded like some, something was <laughs> going to be killed. But uh, it was crazy. All sorts of strange 
Wow. I mean, listeners, um, in case I do decide to keep this in the final edit, uh, this recording is al fresco that we're doing today. Uh, Sam is in his office. His office is open on all sides. It's got two wonderful hammocks in it, as you uh, might have heard at the beginning. Um, and one? you can just see all the greenery in the background, the blue sky. I mean, I'm... Uh, I'm so jealous, but it does mean that if you hear a bit of wind coming through or a uh, weird beeping siren political uh, call to arms thing or any vultures doing the dirty, then you know exactly uh, <laughs> what's been going down. Um, we'll, well, we'll you update it. We'll paint the scene with words for you so you don't miss anything. Exactly. <laughs> we wouldn't want anyone to, you know, miss out on the part where they came to passport people for the bird action. Remember the first time you watched The Matrix? You've not seen it? Well, basically, this guy gets offered a blue pill and a red pill by an anonymous stranger. The blue pill allows the guy to wake up in his bed with ignorance being blissful while the red pill shows the guy what the truth looks like. Can you honestly say that you want the truth that would destroy your world as you know it? But what if we were never given a choice at all? What if one day the contents of the red pill was dispensed en masse into the water supply and everyone woke up one day only to be blinded by the sunlight blazing through every window on earth? Go to islandlifeproductions.bandcamp.com to begin experiencing The Blindfold, a choose-your-own-audio-adventure by Island Life Productions. Despite everything that we've been talking about and everything that you've kind of noted to be true about this country, do you think that Central American nations like Honduras get a bad or an unfair reputation despite the fact that, that everything that you've said is true? And uh, why? Yeah. Well, that, that's, a, that's a really important question. And the answer is yes, they do get a really unfair reputation. Uh, because, for example, I mean... When when I went traveling to Spain, my my parents said, "Oh, that's great, fantastic, you know, have a good time." When I said, "Oh, I'm now I'm going to Honduras," they say, "Oh, stay safe." Uh, and there uh, <laughs> there is a, a widespread perception that, that these countries are dangerous to to foreigners, dangerous to tourists, and, and you're going to get mugged, robbed, and all of the, these stereotypes. And there's a big there's a big stereotype as well that these countries are quite famous for gang violence, like grisly gang violence. Uh, now, that that really doesn't reflect Honduran society. I've got to hi highlight this. I can't highlight it enough. That does not is not reflective of Honduran society. It's not reflective of, of anything that I've seen. Uh, Honduran people are the, the most friendly people I've ever met. Um, they are always looking to help each other out in the crisis. Uh, I see a lot of people. A lot of people are struggling in Honduras, but the community there is a huge sense of community. People are coming together. They're cooking together. They're feeding each other. It, it, it is really one of the most friendly, extraordinary countries I've been to. The people I meet uh, are absolutely amazing. They invite you into their homes. I'm I'm a teacher in, of English in the local school. I've just arrived, but I've already got several dinner invitations. People saying we want to uh, welcome you. Want to cook? You. Very very friendly people. 
there's also a lot going for the country in terms of uh, resources and natural beauty. I mean, it's incredible. Uh, the number of native species here, the, the beautiful national parks. The, the, I mean, we've got coasts on the to the Atlantic and Pacific, beautiful, beautiful areas. Uh, absolutely incredible. And a lot of people are put off from visiting the region because they're, they're scared of crime and violence. And, and frankly, the, the, their concerns are way overblown. Uh, I've never had problems here. I've never, never felt like I'm in a particularly dangerous situation. I think the rules, if, if you're thinking of visiting the country, yeah, please do. Um, but the normal rules apply, you know, just maybe be a little bit careful of your wallet if you walk into a market. Don't go home very late at night in an area you don't know completely drunk. Uh, but <laughs> apart from just that, common yeah. sense, really. Yeah, these countries are underrated, and and you, you should definitely visit them if you have the inclination. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit now about uh, the town that you're in, that you are, where you are a teacher of English at the local school, the wonderful town of Graciath. What's what's there to know? Tell us all. Ah, there's <laughs> Graciath is a really it's a really beautiful town. It's situated in. Uh, the province of Lempira. Uh, it's named after the person who uh, who tried. He was defending the the region from the Spanish uh, Lempira, and he's now printed on all the banknotes. So the town's name is literally "Thank you, Lempira," paying respect to this 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 man. Uh, Gracias is is a dusty town. It, it's a farming community. Uh, it's 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 pretty small. Uh, it's got, but it, it just like you know, normal normal Central American scenes can be seen if you walk, if I walk into town today. It's a Sunday. Uh, the the roads are going to be clogged with motor taxis bustling with activity. You can get any form of beautiful uh, produce from the local markets. Uh, we're within walking distance of the tallest mountain in Honduras, the Salaki, uh, Mount Salaki, and it's in Salaki National Park. Uh, so it is a really really beautiful town, uh, full of activity and interesting things. Uh, to do and has some great restaurants as well. Amazing. And you could have gone anywhere. I mean, relatively anywhere in the midst of this pandemic. Um, you know, obviously some places are easier than, than others. But why was this where you ultimately chose to go? Good question. Uh, ultimately... So I, I mentioned before that I was, I was traveling through the region as a backpacker. I, I was enthralled by the, the beautiful monuments and tourist attractions, but I wanted to see more of what everyday life was like. Uh, so during, um, <laughs> well, it wasn't during the pandemic. I, I, was, I was meant to come here before the pandemic started, but I've always had this inclination to go towards um, a small rural town, a small rural community to see what, what life is like. And I, I chose, I wanted to to go somewhere that would sort of be emblematic of and uh, representative of life in Honduras as a whole. And I chose, uh, so I thought I'd come to a, a village, which seemed like a really, really good bet. Uh, and and Gracias, when I found a job in Gracias as a teacher of English, I, I couldn't say no. <laughs> I thought this was absolutely perfect. So, you know, looking for the, the village life in a Central American country, uh, in a country which I don't know too much about, but would love to learn more about, Gracias Honduras seemed to to tick all the boxes. Amazing. I mean, ugh. it sounds like the dream, really. <laughs> Relatively speaking, in the midst of, of everything going on, I mean, power cuts aside, but you you look you look happy out there. You you've got the wind blowing through. You've got the sun out. You you seem relatively safe from uh, COVID stuff. Do you? 
I mean, are you are you loving life at the moment? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> I am loving life. I, I do enjoy it. Uh, I, I don't think I'm safe from the COVID stuff. Um, Honduras has had a huge number of cases, and the health system here, if you did get COVID, it is is not particularly great. Um, again, aforementioned corruption in the health system. Uh, and although there are no restrictions in Honduras at the moment, there used to be, but there are not so much. I believe that, that officially there's a curfew at 9 p.m. Uh, and you should wear a mask. These things are not enforced. Uh, and I think there's, I think the government has come to terms with the fact that it does, either doesn't care or doesn't believe these things are enforceable. Uh, there, I mean, yes, there is a sort of a peaceful and less stressful vibe about the place at the moment, but the, the health pandemic still very much rages on, and I'm aware of that a lot. Um, children aren't, aren't coming into school, so I'm still te I'm teaching on Zoom. I spend the best part of my life shouting into it, a Zoom screen. <laughs> so, I mean, I am loving life. I'm, I'm enjoying the freedom. I think definitely in comparison to what I hear about the UK at the moment, where everyone's trapped inside, the freedom is glorious. But I still have to be very careful because we're not out of the woods yet. And it, in some ways, I would much prefer to be in the UK where the vaccine rollout is seeming to do all right at the moment. I mean, it's one of the things that the government has got right in the UK. I'm not sure if you'd agree. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but in Honduras, I mean, there's not even there's no hope of getting vaccines here for the next next few months, and I doubt I doubt any rollout will begin until the until next year. So we're not out of the woods; we're very much in the woods. And does that worry you? Uh, I I take as many protective measures as I as I can. Uh, I, I think I think I'll be I'll be fine here. <laughs> I'll, I'll make it. In terms of the country as a whole, I think yeah, I think that this is a a complete. It's an emergency, and the government isn't treating it like it is the emergency that it is. Uh, and a, a lot of people are gonna are gonna die. Uh, I'm gonna get very very sick. Um, it, it's it's dreadful what's happening here. It's it's a it's a very difficult problem because of. I mean, there's very limited vaccines, and unfortunately, the very, very rich countries have jumped straight to the head of the queue, and there seems to be very, very little. Um, I mean, there are some efforts to get vaccines into the hands of, of poorer countries and, and, and the health systems of poorer nations, but but it's, it's nowhere near enough. There's nowhere near the demand that, that there is. And yeah, I think on a national scale, it's worrying and it's a, it's a travesty. It is, it is concerning. Also concerning... Um as well as the, the sort of general medical emergency in the world, is the climate one. Um, because at the same time as being a fairly poor nation, Honduras is home to an incredible array of natural wonders, including rainforests, cloud forests, mangroves, savannas, mountain ranges. I didn't know this before I started research, but there's even a barrier reef. The Honduran oh. barrier reef, that sounds fun. <laughs> but how yeah. can Honduras protect these landscapes you know, I'm kind of talking economically, but I'm also talking about sort of the mindset around having uh, these these ecological wonders whilst protecting its people. How do you mean protecting its people? I guess what I'm saying, and, and listeners to the podcast will know that I kind of reference this a bit on the Java episode, is that... <sighs> it's, easy, it's easy for a country that does not have... A lot of strong economic resources to say well okay we can mine this for we can you know chop down all the trees in this forest and take palm oil from it and mm. even though it's incredibly damaging to the environment 
it's what will ensure that this number of families are able to put food on the table. Um, and these are the sorts of conversations that are a little less complicated in sort of wealthier nations where you can afford to put a whole bunch of money and protective systems towards uh, ensuring that that choice doesn't have to be made. But in a slightly poorer nation, Honduras being one of them, you kind of have to make that choice and you certainly have to get a balance between, you know, how much are you like protecting the environment because it's the right thing to do for the planet versus, you know, what are you doing in order to ensure that, you know, people are able to to have lives? Okay, yeah, thank you. It's, it's a good question. It's a very good question. Uh, but before I before I dive into the answer, let me just start by giving a little sort of it must be time for an ad break for the for the Honduran Barrier Reef, which no one knows about. <laughs> <laughs> On behalf of the country, may I just say, if you have not heard of the Honduran reefs, um, totally look them up. So there's a series of islands off the coast off, off the Atlantic coast of Honduras. It's called uh, Utila, Roatan, and then you have the world's second largest reef outside you know outside australia and the great barrier reef there no one knows about it a few people visit it uh yes it is a it's a gem of a place and, uh, and a huge asset uh, a really really incredible piece of honduras's natural endowments uh you mentioned the, this trade-off between developing uh the resources and palm oil and and jobs and food on the table uh for me uh, my perspective is there isn't really a, a huge trade-off because, as, as I mentioned uh, earlier on, the, the palm oil plantations. Um, uh, so, uh, also, uh, if you're if, if any listener has Google Maps open, check out the palm oil plantations. They're in the north of the country, along that same coast, the Atlantic coast. A huge um, environmental disaster. Huge areas of forests have become complete deserts. Palm oil after palm oil. It's like I, I know the palm oil in Southeast Asia gets a bad rep. But in Honduras, exactly the same processes are happening. Is there a trade-off between growing palm oil and food on the table and jobs for ordinary Hondurans? That's exactly what the government at the moment, it's the sort of centre-right government, uh, would 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 have you believe. That say, well, yes, yes, there are going to be environmental casualties, but look, we're developing the country and, and increasing the prosperity of the people. But my point is, a lot of these resources, the palm oil, is not increasing the prosperity of the people. It is increasing the prosperity of a very, very select elite um, and not providing jobs for ordinary Hondurans. So I, I'm the trade-off between development and environmental protection, I, I don't see it as, as being like that. If anything, the, the two are aligned. The degradation of the environment is also a reason why a lot of people um, are in poverty. Uh, it's, it's very, very tough. It's, it's a very, very tough situation. Um, on, uh, Finn, do you have a, remind me what was the second part of that question? Um, well, <laughs> well, uh, there wasn't necessarily a second part. It was, it was just mm -hmm. about sort of how how Honduras is supposed to protect these landscapes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, th there is something else that I mentioned as well. Uh, and if you look at a map of Honduras, initially when I arrived here, I was very, very impressed because there are huge. Um, huge national parks, areas of protected land, very, very important. Uh, and I was really, really impressed by the efforts uh, that were being made by the central government. I thought, oh, maybe this is something that is really, really good that they're getting right. That They are making an effort to protect natural lands. Uh, and also you'll, you'll see there's a wave of eco-tourist um, development. So you have hotels and eco-tourism becoming a more and more important thing in the Honduran economy. Um, but I think something else that is worth mentioning as well is even though this this looks 
at the beginning, it looks as if this is a really positive development in, in the country. You've got the development of eco resorts and, and the idea that this that, that tourism is, is going to be in concert with protecting the environment. Um, but the situation I find doing more research into these places is that these national parks, although they are areas of protected land, as soon as anyone powerful wants to do anything um, on that land, they get the green lights to do it. And there's one, oh, let me see if, if I can remember the name, but there, there is a new eco-development, uh, it's called an eco-resort on, it's near Teller, uh, the, the city on, on the coast, and it's called an eco-hotel that's been developed on national park land, but also the land of native peoples. There's quite a controversial development. Ooh, that's a and, twofer. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And this eco-hotel boasts of having conference centers, golf courses, uh, huge luxury suites. And you just get the impression that eco has been rammed into the name uh, to make it sound like a really positive thing for the environment when actually it's anything but. I mean, I've never come across... Have you come across an eco-golf resort, Finn? No, <laughs> no, I can't say I have. <laughs> this, is the, this is the problem as well. I mean, so this has been developed on national park land and native land is a part of the uh, Garifuna people's uh, claimed land. So I'm not sure if you can hear the wind in the background. So yeah, that's all right. That's all right. Uh, a lot of the national parks do overlap with lands that are claimed by native peoples. And uh, the government uses national parks as a way of sort of policing the native peoples. Uh, and certainly when, when this hotel was being uh I mean, yeah, on one hand, the government's building this golf course and, and huge hotel on lands of Native American people saying, oh, but, um, you know, this is an eco-development. But at the same time, they're also limiting the, the Native group's ability to fish in the seas of the national park, saying, oh, we, we need to stop you guys from fishing because this is now a national park zone. But for a group of people who rely on subsistence farming and fishing for their livelihoods, this is destroying the livelihoods of Native peoples. And national park and environmental policies being used as a way to criminalize and um, prejudice against certain groups in Honduras as well. And there's a huge amount of hypocrisy in the way that the national park systems are run. I mean, so much to unpack there. And I guess this flows nicely into the question that I always ask um, all guests on Passport People, which is what what does the future hold for Honduras? You know, we have that strange uh, dichotomy of all of these uh, priorities going on at the moment where we've got the, the sort of the foreign nations exerting their influence and the oligarchs and... Um, uh, covid also in the mix and all of the environment stuff like what what comes next for this country that's a good question <laughs> it's a it's one that uh, i it's it's incredibly difficult to answer and i don't i'm perhaps not the the best person to be asking uh i i would i would emphasize again that honduras has an incredible amount of uh resources that, that should play in its favor uh, and it's got a huge amount of potential none more so than the honduran people themselves uh, i've taught in a school for the best part of a year now in, in honduras and the students are incredibly bright incredibly gifted really smart people really turned on uh, it's unfortunate that some of the smartest and best in honduras don't see their futures here necessarily so a lot of people are planning, I mean, I'm writing reference letters at the moment. A lot of people are heading towards the United States to get scholarships there. A lot of people are heading to Asia and Taiwan, get scholarships there. Um, 
I really, really hope that the really smart people come back to Honduras. And, and I, I think some of them will, some of them definitely will, uh, and, and help develop the country. The, the risk is if all the, all the bright people leave and all the resources are being taken, the country doesn't have a particularly bright future. But if, a, if enough smart people come back and, and stay, uh, and there are some really gifted people, really, really great community-minded people as well, who are full of ideas for projects and initiatives and ideas to help each other, uh, the country will develop. Um, I think a big part of the story will depend on the country's leadership in the next few years. Uh, actually, this this year um, in November we have elections, so we've got to we've got to see what happens to um, to, to the, these elections as well. Uh, see see what the leadership uh, will do, what changes are happening there, uh, and also we've got to see what to some extent what the policy of the United States will be as well. Um, I hate to say it, but the United States still has a huge influence in this part of the world. Under the last administration, they seemed very keen to cut uh, a lot of aid uh, and uh, a lot of projects. I know a lot of um, projects that were seeking to promote development and safety and justice in the country that they had to scale back massively because of cuts uh, to the aid program. Uh, we've got to see what this admin administration brings as well and, and see if those get restored. And I guess to, to come back a little bit on the earlier part of your answer just there, if Honduras does find a way to stop this brain drain, you know, to stop people effectively leaving leaving the country and, and sort of not coming back and sort of detaching, presuming you can get to a position where those that those intelligent members of the next generation come back to Honduras and want to make a difference, do you mm. genuinely think that in, you know, the coming generations, in the course of our lifetime, that that stranglehold on this country by the oligarchs, by... Um, some of the wealthier foreign nations is something that can genuinely be broken so that, as you were kind of referencing at the beginning, the government and its policies genuinely begin referencing and feeling representative of the thoughts and feelings of ordinary Hondurans? Good question. I sincerely, I sincerely hope so. I hope it's not a cop-out answer. <laughs> I, 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 I think... But I mean, I mean the the incredible inequality that we're talking about has persisted for hundreds and hundreds of years. So I mean, I, I'm not going to sit on the podcast and say, "Ah, oh, yes, I'm going to place money on on the stranglehold of the latifundia and the elites breaking in the 50 years." I think it's an incredibly difficult problem, uh, and it's also very one that's very much entrenched because if all the powerful people have the political power, when where's the change going to come from? There are some reasons to be hopeful. I think the the I think that the elites and the oligarchy in Honduras are facing more resistance. I think the pe people are beginning to understand what is happening in the country and then who's pulling the strings. Uh, there is an awareness of Honduras that the system needs fixing as well that, that I think is increasing every day. So I believe that the if you're an oligarch in Honduras, like uh, I believe that there are reasons that you might be increasingly concerned. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I, I hope that the power um, between the very, very wealthy and, and the poorer people continues going in the poorer people's favour. And, and I hope I hope that the stranglehold on the country by a series of few families and multinational interests is reduced. Um, I think it will take a very long time for that to happen completely. Though. And finally, for anybody who does make the journey over to Honduras, what is the one thing to do there that is the proper experience of getting in touch with the country and what it's really all about? Ah, so many, <laughs> so many. <laughs> That's why I ask people to pick one. 
<laughs> you know what? I, I think I saw this question. You sent it to me. Thank you very much. Months before, but uh, there's there's no there's no one thing to do. <laughs> Come on, man. There's if there's one place that not a lot of people know about, I think it is tourists. It gets skipped over, but it's uh, Lago Yohoa. It's in the centre of the country, um, and in this in this area, it is really quite extraordinary. You have many many cool things. I think the town, the nearest town, is called Peña Blanca. There's many extraordinary things that come into one place, and you can do them all from this place, which is which is fantastic. So Peña Blanca is a very small town, but within walking distance, you have I think it's two, if not three, protected national parks and, and biospheres. Fantastic um, hiking to be done. There's lots of mountains and waterfalls to see, and if that weren't enough, then there's also a craft brewery. Uh, in, and after a, a a day of hiking, seeing the macaws, you can walk into this wood-panelled craft brewery uh, and enjoy a pint, and the beers are very good and relatively inexpensive. So I would totally recommend Lago Yohoa. Wow. That, that... And the... I will <laughs> I will accept that answer because it was technically one place for people to go and they can do everything from there. So I will I'll accept that as an answer. Yeah. Um, Technicality. I love it. <laughs> oh, always, always. Um, Sam, you you have a blog, don't you? <laughs> I, do, I do, Finn. I do have a blog. Wonderful. Yeah. Why don't you tell the people about it? So uh, I I write I, I do write a travel blog, uh, and uh, but but I will stress that this travel blog is uh, it's it's a it, you know it is based on events that happen in my real life, but there is a healthy 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 dose of fiction in there to make it more entertaining than usual the reason is I, I read a lot of travel blogs and i get a bit tired of people saying oh, i've been here and i've been here and, and i've done this and i've done this so i have really spruced it up recently with, with some, <laughs> but i hope it makes an entertaining read so i, mean, I hope the listeners will forgive me for for <laughs> the the liberties of taking the stories the blog is sam blog that's s-a-m W-O-O-L-S-T-O-N dot blog. Um, and you can read some of these adventures, some of them semi-fictitious uh, on there. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you find it entertaining, if you do. Uh, I, I would, I mean, talking of plugs, I mean, I, I, no, I, will, I, will, I will say as well, um, I'm developing a, a, a more serious professional blog uh, where I'm going to explore some of the issues that we've spoken about today, Finn. Uh, Ooh, term, perfect. Uh, impunity in Latin America and I want to cover the Honduran elections for people as well which are happening in November this year um, so I'm, I'm writing a it's called a Latin American journal it's in development at the moment and I will release it uh, in August in time for the elections and the 200th anniversary of independence from the Spanish in Honduras <gasps> so for that and I'll, 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 I'll post a link on my blog when it is ready and up and running unfortunately it's not ready yet uh, but it's in development at the moment and if I may just briefly plug other organizations that are more in fitting with the conversations we've had today, if anyone is really interested in social justice uh, and uh, the environment and different issues affecting Honduras at the moment, I fully recommend a podcast. It's called Honduras Now Podcast. And you can explore some of the issues, the really big issues which are affecting the country at the moment. Um, there's a lot of uh, politics in there, but also the uh, We've just had two hurricanes which have slammed into the region and, and what's happening there. What are the, how, how is the country recovering from this? So 
that's the Honduras Now podcast is is really really very good. Um, so check out these as well if you're listening and, and you're interested. That's amazing. Thank you so, so much, Sam. That has been an absolutely uh, amazing listen. Well, I've certainly enjoyed it. I hope, listeners, you've enjoyed it just as much, if not more, uh, than I have. Um, now it's our turn to do a plug, which is that, for those of you who don't know, Island Life Productions is now on Patreon, which is a wonderful place where you can support uh, the wonderful work that we do and the podcasts we make and all the fictiony stuff that we've got going on and everything like that for as little as £2 per month which i think comes to about three or four dollars something like that um three euros look up the exchange rate wherever uh, you are to get in but there's all sorts of fun bonus content and yes i uh i believe you will enjoy it if you go and check it out and see if uh it's for you um, but for now, it is the end of the episode. We will be back next week talking to some other wonderful human being about some other fantastic part of the world. Until then, from Sam and I, goodbye. Thank you very much, Finn. Thank you to the listeners. You've been listening to Passport People. The music was by Harry Bongo, and the cover art was by Maya Pires. Learn more about us by visiting our Island Life Productions Facebook page, visiting our Patreon at patreon.com slash islandlifeproductions, or by visiting our website at islandlifeproductions.com.